Mark chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And he went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. We're looking at the question, what is the last thing on the Lord's list? A lot has been said through the years about uh, people having a bucket list, things they want to do, things they want to accomplish prior to the end of their life, whether it's things they've never had the nerve to do or places they've always wanted to go, people to meet. But it seems as though a lot of people have a list of things they'd like to accomplish in life. Well, it's interesting when you consider the Lord Jesus Christ, he had a list of things he as well wanted to accomplish throughout his ministry, and he did exactly that. The scripture tells us he came to do the will of him that sent me. And when he died on Calvary's cross, prior to giving up the ghost, he declared, it is finished. This passage involves the post-resurrection Christ. In this passage, we see him giving instructions to his disciples, indicating his work had done, but for us as believers, our work has just begun. And so we're going to consider this morning, what's the last thing on his list, but what is to be a priority on our list as Christians? About 95 to 100 different events have been mentioned in the book up through this chapter. But this particular chapter, though it's the shortest of the gospel, serves as a focus for some of the greatest confusion about not only this book, but the, uh, the gospels as a whole. For professing believers, this chapter has proven to be a mystery for several reasons. There are those who deny the validity of verses 9 through 20. Yes, the verses that I just read at the beginning of this message. There are many who say, well, that's a mistake. That's an error. Those should not be a part 
of the Bible. Unfortunately, if, uh, if you're using a Schofield Bible, I've used a Schofield Bible throughout much of my ministry, a great study notes. But Mr. Schofield, along with many other Bible commentators and scholars in his day, bought into the misleading belief that textual criticism tells us this passage of scripture should not be included in the Bible. They love that's wrong. It's just wrong. The problem is those who hold to that position are following the critical text. We're not going to get into all that this morning, but I'm just saying there's two different textual families in regard to the New Testament. There's the traditional or received text. There is the critical text. Every modern translation today, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the RSV, the ASV, the new ASV, the ESV, or any other of the new translations, all of them come through the line of the critical text. There are over 5,000 differences between the critical text and the received text. We hold to the position that the King James Bible is God's preserved, inspired word for English-speaking people. No, we do not believe somebody has to learn English so they can read the King James Bible and get saved. God has equivalent translations in many languages that are used by missionaries and pastors around the world. But we believe for English-speaking people, this is the book we hold to. And for those who say this passage of Scripture doesn't belong there, I'll simply state that is ridiculous. Secondly, the definition of salvation, as seen here in Mark 16, has some people confused. Notice verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This verse serves as a proof text for those who believe in baptismal regeneration. What is that? Baptismal regeneration teaches that baptism is a means by which God imparts saving grace and results in the remission of sin. Beloved, I'll add, that is heresy. The scripture teaches us, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, we're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, plus nothing and minus nothing. Now, the problem with those who hold to this view is they look at that verse and they say, Well, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And then they stop reading right there. Well, you've got to finish the verse. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Let me ask you a question. Is this verse of scripture true? Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Is that true? Of course it is. How about Romans 10, 9? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Is that true? Yes, it is. You see, we can't afford to forget the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. You you interpret scripture based on the context. It's not wise to pull a verse out of its context, set it all over by itself, and then build or establish a doctrine based on that verse that's been pulled from its context. Let me illustrate it this way. Believe and be baptized, and you shall be saved. But if you don't believe, you can't be saved. 
How about if we change something for the word baptized? Believe and join the church. You'll be saved. But if you don't believe, you're not going to be saved. You believe and you do good works. You'll be saved. But if you don't believe, you won't be saved. Do you understand the context here? You see, the idea is somebody gets saved by believing and then they are baptized as a testimony for that belief. I'll put it this way. I heard this illustrated many years ago as a young Christian. He that getteth on the bus and sitteth down shall surely get to town. But he that getteth not on the bus shall not get to town. See, what's the key factor there? Getting on the bus. What's the issue here? It's believing in Christ. After that, yes, comes baptism and church membership and good good works and everything else associated with the Christian walk. So why in the world some people get hung up on this, I don't know. And then another issue are the confirming signs that follow believers. You have this crowd that talks about these six confirming signs that are mentioned in verses 17 and 18. And they say, well, after all, Christians ought to be able to go ahead and handle snakes. They ought to be able to drink poison. They ought to be able to heal people. And you've got all these wackos out there with these fringe groups that want to go ahead and emphasize these sign elements and say, well, that's a part of it. Listen, we're not handling snakes here. We're not going ahead and have healing lines. Those were signs given to confirm the word of God. They were apostolic signs. Look at verse 20. And he went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. Signs were supernatural events given to attest, to support, to evidence the apostolic message. We refer to those as apostolic signs. They have passed off the scene. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The scripture has a lot to say in Corinthians about gifts, spiritual gifts, church gifts, sign gifts. The issue is the sign gifts passed away with the apostles. When they passed off the scene, so did those sign gifts. What we have today is God's perfect, God's complete word, and that is good enough. All right, so there's some of the confusion with this chapter. As a result, a lot of people just go ahead and write it off. Well, let's go ahead and consider two things this morning in regard to what it is the Lord considered this most important matter on his list that he passes on to us. And by the way, all of that was introduction. The message will be rather short. Uh, Two things this morning. Notice verse 14. The opposition to the great commission. We see verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. The Great Commission. This was the burden. This was the heart of our Lord. And he wanted to make sure his disciples understood the importance of this matter. I believe that's one reason he waited until after 
his resurrection to give this command, this commission, these marching orders to the church. And we'll get to those specifically in just a moment. But notice the opposition. They didn't believe. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. How tragic that the hardness of someone's heart today will prevent them from hearing what the Lord has to say. You know, people can read the Word of God and they can look at it and they can comprehend it and yet there's something in their old heart that says, you know, I don't, I don't go along with that. I don't believe that. I'm not going to do that. Why? I don't know. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't think it applies to today. I think that's a little archaic and outdated. I think it's tradition. Whatever reason someone might throw up. The problem is whenever you choose to disregard God's word for your own opinion or for the opinions of others, you're making a horrible, terrible mistake because you're saying no to God and yes to something else. You understand, whenever we head in a direction other than to the Lord and in his word, we're going the wrong way. Hardness of heart and unbelief caused these disciples to not believe the Lord had risen from the dead. We're all familiar with the story of Thomas. Isn't it interesting? He's referred to as the only disciple referred to with the adjective doubting. Oh, doubting Thomas. The reason he picked up that moniker was because he wasn't in the upper room that night when Jesus first appeared to his disciples. When they told him about it, he said, well, unless I see with my eyes, unless I can thrust my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. You know, there's a lot of professing Christians or Actual Christians today who take that same attitude. Unless God shows me, unless God makes it known to me specifically, I'm not going along with it. You know, the scripture tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Bible tells us that just shall live by faith. For someone to not exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in regard to his or her walk with the Lord, making a terrible, terrible mistake as a believer. How is it that someone can repent of their sin and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, trusting him to get to heaven, but we can't trust the Lord to get us through to tomorrow? It's a funny thing about that. We can trust the Lord with our soul, but we can't trust the Lord with our substance, with our strength, with our relationships, with our family, with our finances, with whatever else you want to put in there. The problem is unbelief and hardness of heart. How tragic that so many find themselves in that situation. It was especially tragic of these individuals. Let me just mention a couple of things. They witnessed Jesus's life. First John chapter one at verse one says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. You see, not only did they see him, but they watched him. 
They had an opportunity to walk with the Lord for three years throughout his earthly ministry. They heard his teaching. They saw the miracles that he had performed. Their hearts burned within them as he taught them the truths of his holy word. And how tragic that these individuals who were closer to the Lord than any other person alive. I said, I don't believe it. I, I, I just don't see it. How sad. They witnessed his life. They witnessed his power. And as a result, because of the hardness of their heart, they rejected his resurrection. Now we, lo- we know the Lord turned that around. And we're thankful for that. They did come to realize He had risen from the dead, for he did appear to them. Our Lord rose from the dead that Sunday, first day of the week. He appeared to his disciples, and it was at that time that our Lord gave them his instruction for the New Testament church. That we call the Great Commission. It's in five parts. One for each one of the Gospels and also the, uh, the book of Acts. I give them to you in the, the order I believe the Lord gave them. Three of them were spoken by our Lord in the upper room. The fourth at the Sea of Galilee and then the fifth on the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended into heaven. But in John, Jesus said, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Mark chapter 16, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Matthew, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. And then in the book of Acts, before he ascended up into heaven, he declared, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth, both home and abroad. So here we see the outline given by our Lord. He tells his disciples, you are the ones that are supposed to go. They are representing the New Testament church. It is the church's responsibility to carry out the Great Commission. Not a Bible college, not a mission board or agency, not some evangelistic association or organization. It's the responsibility of God's New Testament church to get this done. Thank the Lord for the missionaries. We have an opportunity to help along the way. But beloved, there are many more. We need to be mindful of the fact that God has given the command to get the gospel to the regions beyond. The what is to go and preach and teach. It's to go and to tell. The who is us going to everyone outside this room. God expects us to be a witness to all. This very popular statement that's uh, been made public for some weeks now or some months as a result of all of the uh, all we hear going on that no life matters until black lives matter. I'm just going to say that is an incredibly unbiblical response. Every life matters to Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't matter what color someone's skin is. It doesn't matter the nationality they claim. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what cultural or social beliefs they follow. Everyone is in need of the gospel message. This is not a skin issue. It is a sin issue. For the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the responsibility that we as a church has to get the gospel to whosoever will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What was this matter on Jesus' list to do that was so important that he made sure all of his disciples understood exactly what he wanted to accomplish? It was that the message of salvation would go around the world until he returns. That responsibility, that command has not been rescinded and still rests upon us. It is just as viable, just as important, and just as needful today as it was on that day when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and ascended into heaven. Disciples were given the promise by the angel that stood there saying, as he left, he's going to come again. He's going to be back. We are responsible to do that which he has given us to do. The last thing on his to-do list is the first on ours. We need to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. In spite of all of the lockdown orders and all of the stay-at-home demands, all of the restrictions that are being put upon us, just because you, you go out in public and wear a mask doesn't mean you can't talk to somebody about the Lord. Doesn't mean you can't give them a gospel track or invite them to church doesn't mean you can't give somebody your testimony. We need to be mindful of the responsibility which is ours, no matter what's going on around us, to be faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has said the issue of eternal life versus eternal damnation is too critical an issue to allow anything to stop the gospel from going forth. Yes, the great motive for reaching the world is not only the desperate need of all mankind, but is the divine command of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we finish this series, we are reminded the work he has given us to do is yet undone. And we need to be burdened, not just for loved ones, not just for friends and acquaintances, not just for those whom we would like to see in heaven with us. No, we need to be burdened for everyone, whoever they are, wherever they are, and whatever they believe. For Jesus Christ died for the sins of all mankind. Aren't you glad he died for you? He died for everybody else too. Let's not forget that.